Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome once again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. Now, we are, of course, at a very, very, very special time of year, here in the Christmas season, here in the octave of Christmas. And, in fact, the precise octave of Christmas, that is the eighth day after Christmas, um, is in itself a feast day. And these days, the feast is known as the Feast of Mary, the Mother of God. But it didn't always have that name. It was always a feast day very related to Mary, the Mother of God. But until the revision of the calendar a few years ago, it had a different name, and it celebrated a related but different event. It was the Feast of the Circumcision of Jesus. Because, of course, we all know, or should know, that uh, Jesus was Jewish, and Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, were observant Jews. And by Jewish law, the male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. And of course, that eighth day after birth, uh, if the birth is in fact on Christmas, that eighth day would be January 1st. So January 1st was I'm tempted to say was always known, but until recently was always known as the Feast of the Circumcision of Jewish of Jesus. Excuse me. And that is, of course, a very special and telling and moving celebration for a Jew in the Catholic Church for a number of reasons. One is it is really it's it's the one feast that celebrates the Jewishness of Jesus. In other words, also the Jewishness of our salvation in uh, a unique way, because it is the one feast that celebrates a uniquely Jewish observance of the law and the life of Jesus, his circumcision. And in fact, if you stop to think about it, it was the very first blood that Jesus shed for our salvation was the blood that was shed during his circumcision. And so it was the inauguration of the ultimate, um, frankly, blood sacrifice for the remission of sins. And so I thought that I would commemorate um, this day, this feast day, which would be um, tomorrow, by reading about the circumcision of Jesus from a traditional, very pious Catholic source, which um, many of you may have heard of, which is the City of God by Mary of Agrida. Uh, it was written several centuries ago, um, and it is a very pious, many people think, um, mystical revelation of aspects of the life of Jesus and Mary, or one can think of it as a, a very pious and beautiful meditation on various aspects of the life of Jesus and Mary. And so I'm going to read from... The a volume, because uh, it's, uh, I think, four volumes of the City of God, because it goes through so much of salvation history. I'm going to read from the volume called The Incarnation, and the chapter on the circumcision of Jesus. So with that introduction, 
Um, this is, uh, again, of course, it's Roy Shoman, and I'm reading from Mary of Agrita's City of God, the Incarnation, her chapter on the circumcision of Jesus. Chapter 14. The Divine Infant is Circumcised and Receives the Name Jesus. I'm just, I'll just interject there. Of course, the um, naming of the child was done on the, um, during the celebration of the circumcision. So that would also be when he received the holy name of Jesus. Back to Mary of Agrita. Like other towns of Israel, the city of Bethlehem had its own synagogue where the people came together to pray, wherefore it was also called the house of prayer, and to hear the law of Moses. This was read and explained by a priest from the pulpit in a loud voice, in order that the people might understand its precepts. But in these synagogues no sacrifices were offered. This was reserved for the temple of Jerusalem, except when the Lord commanded otherwise. It was not left to the choice of the people in order to avoid the danger of idolatry, as is mentioned in Deuteronomy 12.6. But the priest, who was the teacher or minister of the law in those places, was usually also charged with administering the circumcision. Not that this was a binding law, for not only priests but anyone could perform the circumcision, but because the pious mothers firmly believed that the infants would run less danger in being circumcised by the hands of a priest. Our great queen, not on account of any apprehension of danger, but because of the dignity of the child, also wished a priest to administer this rite to him, and therefore she sent her most fortunate spouse to Bethlehem to call the priest of that town. The priest came to the gates or cave of the nativity, where the incarnate word, resting in the arms of his virgin mother, awaited him. With the priest came also two other officials, who were to render such assistance as was customary at the performance of the rite. The rudeness of the dwelling at first astonished and somewhat disconcerted the priest, but the most prudent queen spoke to him and welcomed him with such modesty and grace that his constraint soon changed into devotion and into admiration at the composure and noblest majesty of the mother. And without knowing the cause, he was moved to reverence and esteem for such an unusual personage. When the priest looked upon the face of Mary and of the child in her arms, he was filled with great devotion and tenderness, wondering at the contrast exhibited amid such poverty and in a place so lonely and despised. And when he proceeded to touch the divine flesh of the infant, he was renovated by a secret influence which sanctified and perfected him. It gave him a new existence in grace and raised him up to a state of holiness very pleasing to the Most High Lord. In order to show as much exterior reverence for the sacred rite of circumcision as is possible in that place, St. Joseph lighted two wax candles. The priest requested the Virgin Mother to consign the child to the arms of the two assistants and withdraw for a little while in order not to be obliged to witness the sacrifice. This command caused some hesitation in the Great Lady, for her humility and spirit of obedience inclined her to obey the priest, while on the other hand she was withheld by the love and reverence for her only begotten. In order not to fail against either of these virtues, she humbly requested to be allowed to remain, 
saying that she desired to be present at the performance of this rite, since she held it in great esteem, and that she would have courage to hold her son in her arms, as she wished not to leave him alone on such an occasion. All that she would ask would be that the circumcision be performed with as much tenderness as possible, on account of the delicacy of the child. The priest promised to fulfill her request, and permitted the child to be held in the arms of his mother for fulfilling the mystery. Thus she became the sacred altar on which the truths typified in the ancient sacrifice became a reality, and she herself offered up this new morning sacrifice on her own arms in order that it might be acceptable to the Eternal Father in all particulars. The Divine Mother then unwound the swaddling cloths in which her Most Holy Son was wrapped, and drew from her bosom a towel or linen cloth which she had previously placed there for the purpose of warming it, for the weather was very cold on that day. While holding the child in her hands, she so placed this towel that the relics and the blood of the circumcision would fall upon it. The priest thereupon proceeded to his duty and circumcised the child, the true God and man. At the same time, the Son of God, with immeasurable love, offered up to the Eternal Father three sacrifices of so great value that each one would have been sufficient for the redemption of a thousand worlds. The first was that He, being innocent and the Son of the true God, assumed the condition of a sinner by subjecting himself to the rite instituted as a remedy for original sin and to a law not binding on him. The second was his willingness to suffer the pains of circumcision, which he felt as a true and perfect man. The third was the most ardent love with which he began to shed his blood for the human race, giving thanks to the Eternal Father for having given him a human nature capable of suffering for his exaltation and glory. This prayerful sacrifice of Jesus our Savior the Father accepted, and according to our way of speaking, he began to declare himself satisfied and paid for the indebtedness of humanity. The incarnate Word offered these first fruits of his blood as pledges that he would give it all in order to consummate the redemption and extinguish the debt of the sons of Adam. All these interior acts and movements of the Only Begotten, His, holy, His Most Holy Mother perceived, and in her heavenly wisdom she penetrated the mystery of this sacrament, acting as His Mother and in concert with her Son and Lord in all that He was doing and suffering. True to his human nature, the divine infant shed tears as other children. Although the pains caused by the wounding were most severe, as well on account of the delicacy of his body as on the account of the coarseness of the knife, which was made of flint, yet his tears were caused not so much by the sensible pain as by the supernatural sorrow caused by his knowledge of the hard-heartedness of mortals. For this was more rude and unyielding than the flint, resisting his sweetest love and the divine fire he had come to enkindle in the world and in the hearts of the faithful. Also, the tender and affectionate mother wept like the guileless sheep, which raises its voice in unison with the innocent lamb. In reciprocal love and compassion, the child clung to his mother, 
while she sweetly caressed him at her virginal breast and caught the sacred relics and the falling blood in the towel. These she entrusted to St. Joseph in order to tend to the divine infant and wrap him once more in the swaddling clothes. The priest was somewhat surprised at the tears of the mother, yet not understanding the mystery, he conjectured that the beauty of the child might well cause such deep and loving sorrow in her who had given him birth. In all these proceedings, the Queen of Heaven was so prudent, circumspect, and magnanimous that she caused admiration in the angelic choirs and highest delight to her Creator. She gave forth the effulgence of the divine wisdom which filled her, performing each of her actions as perfectly as if she had that alone to perform. She was unyielding in her desire of holding the child in her arms during the circumcision, most careful in preserving the relics, most compassionate in her affliction and tears, feeling feeling herself his pains, most loving in her caresses, most diligent in procuring his comfort, fervent in imitating him in his works, always careful to treat him with the highest reverence, without ever failing or intermitting her acts of virtue, and without ever letting the perfection of one disturb that of the other. Wonderful spectacle exhibited by a maiden of fifteen years, and affording even the angels a sort of new lesson and cause of admiration. In the meanwhile, the priest asked the parents what name they wished to give to the child in circumcision. The great lady, always attentive to honor her spouse, asked St. Joseph to mention the name. St. Joseph turned toward her in like reverence and gave her to understand that he thought it proper this sweet name should first flow from her mouth. Therefore, by divine interference, both Mary and Joseph said at the same time, Jesus is his name. The priest answered, The parents are unanimously agreed, and great is the name which they give to the child, and thereupon he inscribed it in the tablet or register of names of the rest of the children. While writing it, the priest felt great interior movements, so that he shed copious tears, and wondering at what he felt, yet not being able to account for it, he said, I am convinced that this child is to be a great prophet of the Lord. Have great care in raising him, and tell me in what I can relieve your needs. Most holy Mary and Joseph answered the priest with humble gratitude, and dismissed him after offering him the gift of some candles and other articles. You're listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. This is your host, Roy Shoman. And since we are in the octave of Christmas, and coming up on the eighth day after Christmas, which is January 1st, which today is known as the Feast of Mary, the Mother of God, but used to be known as the Feast of the Circumcision, because it is the anniversary of the day when Jesus was circumcised, when the Son of God, who came to earth for the remission of our sins, shed his very first blood for the remission of our sins, which was the blood he shed during the circumcision. And in commemoration of that, I am spending today's show reading an account of the circumcision of Jesus, um, which uh, is from the Venerable Maria of Agrida, 
uh, from her book, The City of God, which some people believe is the fruit of private vision she had and um, in any case is a, uh, you know, a pious, um, you know, pious meditation with the, uh, of course, full approval of the church and the imprimatur and so forth. Uh, whether one believes it's an actual vision or not is, of course, um, up to the individual. So um, that's what I'm doing today. And I will go back to reading from the chapter and um, probably make it through in today's show. So I hope this is um, as moving to you or moving to you as it is to me. It is such a beautiful, beautiful picture of the tender love and care and um, protective nurturing of the infant Jesus by her parents, by his parents, Mary and Joseph, as they offer him to God, in some sense, as a sacrifice on the altar of the arms of the Blessed Virgin Mary as she was holding him um, during the circumcision, as she was tenderly holding the infant Jesus in her forearms, offering the infant Jesus to the priest to inflict the circumcision with his knife. She was the altar on which the Son of God was being offered for the shedding of his first blood. So with that, let me return to the words of Mary of Agrita. Being again left alone with the child, most holy Mary and Joseph celebrated anew the mystery of the circumcision, commenting on the holy name of Jesus amid sweet canticles and tears of joy, the fuller knowledge of which, as also of other mysteries which I have mentioned, is reserved as an additional accidental glory to the saints in heaven. The most prudent mother applied to the wound caused by the knife such medicines as were wont to be used on such occasions for other children. And during the time while the pain and the healing lasted, she would not for a moment part with him, holding him in her arms day and night. The tender love of the Heavenly Mother is beyond all comprehension or understanding of man, for her natural love was greater than any other mother was capable of, and her supernatural love, exceeded that of all the angels and saints together. Her reverence and worship cannot be compared with that of any other created being. These were the delights of the incarnate word which he desired and longed for among the children of men, and this was the recompense which his loving heart drew from the exceeding sanctity of the Virgin Mother for the sorrows occasioned him by their behavior. Although he pleased himself in her alone above all the mortals, and in her found full satisfaction of his love, yet the humble queen sought to alleviate his bodily pains by all the means within her power. Therefore she besought the holy angels to assist her and produce sweet harmony for their incarnate God and her suffering child. The ministers of the Most High obeyed their queen and lady, and in audible voices they rehearsed the canticles which she herself had composed with her spouse in praise of the new and sweet name of Jesus. With this music, so sweet that in comparison to it all human music seemed but irksome discord, the heavenly lady entertained her most holy son, and sweeter yet was the harmony of her heroic virtues, which in her soul formed choirs as of serried armies, as the Lord and Spouse himself says in the canticles. 
hard are human hearts, and more than slow and dull in recognizing and thankfully acknowledging such venerable sacraments, instituted for their eternal salvation by the immense love of their Creator and Redeemer. O sweetest good of my soul and of my life, what wicked return do we make for the exquisite artifices of thy eternal love? O measureless charity, which is not extinguished by the overwhelming waters of our gross and faithless ingratitude. Truly the essential bounty and holiness could not go to a greater length of condescension for love of us, nor exercise more exquisite love than to assume the form of a sinner, drawing upon his own innocence the punishment of the sin which otherwise could never approach him. If men despise such an example and forget such a benefit, how can they be said to retain the use of their reason? How can they presume upon and glory in their wisdom, prudence, or judgment? It would be prudence, ungrateful man, if thou wouldst afflict thyself and weep over thy notorious dullness and darkness of mind in not being moved by such great works of thy God, since not even the divine love can melt the iciness of thy heart. I have now come to the end of the account of the circumcision itself from Mary of Agrita's uh, City of God. Each of her um, meditations or visions of events in the life of Mary and Jesus is followed by an instruction which, uh, as she puts it, instruction which our Most Holy Queen Mary gave me. So now I will read the words of Mary, the instruction that, according to Mary of Agrita, the Blessed Virgin Mary gave her after she was given uh, the preceding vision. Although, again, um, I am not presenting this as though uh, it is uh, doctrinally asserted that these visions are actually uh, true accounts. Um, they are either that or perhaps pious meditations. Uh, again, leaving it up to the listener or to the reader to to make that discrimination for him or herself. But so here's the uh, instruction from the Blessed Virgin Mary which followed the vision of the circumcision of Jesus. My daughter, I wish thee to consider attentively the blessed favor conferred upon thee by being informed of the solicitous care and attention which I lavished upon my most holy and sweetest son in the mysteries just now described. The Most High does not give thee this special light in order only to be regaled by the knowledge of these mysteries, but in order to imitate me in all these things as a faithful handmaid, and in order to distinguish thyself in rendering thanks for his works in the same measure as thou art distinguished in knowing them more fully. Ponder then, dearest, upon the small return given for the love of my Son and Lord by mortals, and how forgetful of thanks even his faithful continue to be. Assume it as thy task, for as far as thy weak powers allow, to render satisfaction for this grievous offense, loving him, thanking him, and serving him with all thy powers, for all the other men who fail to do so. Therefore thou must be an angel in promptitude, most fervent and punctual on all occasions. Thou must die to all earthly things, eliminating and crushing all human inclinations, and rising upon the wings of love, to the heights of love designed for thee by the Lord. 
Thou art not ignorant of the sweet efficacy contained in the memory of the works performed by my most holy Son, and although thou canst so copiously avail thyself of the light given thee to be thankful, yet, in order that thou may fear so much the more the danger of forgetfulness, I particularly inform thee that the saints in heaven, comprehending by the divine light these mysteries, are astonished at themselves for not having paid more attention to them during their life. So, um, that ends the the account of the circumcision from the uh, uh, account given by Mary of Agreda in the City of God. We have come near the halfway point of the show, and um, as is normally the case, we take a short a short break halfway through. And uh, since I started the show, reading from the City of God, uh, this um, mystical, pious account of uh, events of the life of Jesus, and of course focusing in this Christmas season on his birth and um, in the part I just read on his circumcision, since we're uh, January 1st used to be the Feast of the Circumcision of Jesus, which also, of course, is when he was given his name, Jesus, so you can think of it also as a um, feast that had been dedicated to the holy name of Jesus, as well as to the first shedding of his blood for our salvation on the occasion of when he was circumcised on his eighth day after birth. And when we come back from the break, I will continue, therefore, reading from Mary of Agreda, um, a, a probably a subsequent scene, perhaps the visit of the three magi, to kind of keep us in this um, meditative Christmas uh, mood. So with that, let's go to the break and be back in a few moments. You're listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Back in a few moments. Jesus Christ the Lord. 
serpent, earthly father, wise men from the east. A holy mother, sweetly singing to the Prince of Peace. Come, oh, come and see Jesus Christ the King. Hello again, this is Roy Shoman. You're listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria this week after Christmas. And I have been reading today from the uh, uh, book written by Venerable Mary of Agrita called The City of God, which is, um, as I mentioned several times actually so far, it is either the result of private revelations that she received about events in the life of Jesus and Mary, or it is a pious meditation on those events. But it is in any case a, a classic of a Catholic spirituality, and um, it does also bear the imprimatur, so it's 100% kosher, if you excuse the expression. And... Um, I believe it was written in the very tail end of the 19th century and is a, a very, very beautiful source of meditations on the life of Jesus and Mary. Uh, before the break, I, I read the account of the circumcision because uh, January 1st, used, well, in any case, January 1st is the anniversary of the circumcision of Jesus since it falls on the eighth day after Christmas and by Jewish law, the male child is uh, circumcised and given his name on the eighth day after birth, which would be January 1st. And for that reason, until recently, January 1st was celebrated as the Feast of the Circumcision. Uh, now it is uh, celebrated as the Feast of Mary, the Mother of God, which, of course, is very related to the circumcision. So um, I am now going to continue with a subsequent event in the life of, or in the infancy of Jesus from the, uh, Mary of Agrias account. I will be reading the account of the visit by the three kings. So back to uh, Mary of Agrias, City of God. The three Magi kings who came to find the divine infant after his birth were natives of Persia, Arabia, and Saba, countries to the east of Palestine. Their coming was prophesied especially by David, and before him by Balaam, who, having been hired by Balak, king of the Moabites, to curse the Israelites, blessed them instead. In this blessing, Balaam said that he would see the king Christ, though not at once. 
that he would behold him, although not present, for he did not see him with his own eyes, but through the Magi, his descendants, many centuries after. He said also that a star would arise unto Jacob, which was Christ, who arose to reign forever in the house of Jacob. These three kings were well versed in the natural sciences and well read in the scriptures of the people of God, and on account of their learning they were called Magi. By their knowledge of scripture and by conferring with some of the Jews, they were imbued with a belief in the coming of the Messiah expected by that people. They were moreover upright men, truthful and very just in the government of their countries. Since their dominions were not so extended as those of our times, they governed them easily and personally administered justice as wise and prudent sovereigns. This is the true office of kings, and therefore the Holy Ghost says that he holds their hearts in his hands in order to direct them like irrigated waters to the fulfillment of his holy will. They were also of noble and magnanimous disposition, free from avarice and covetousness, which so oppresses, degrades, and belittles the spirits of princes. Because these magi governed adjoining countries and lived not far from each other, they were mutual friends and shared with each other the virtues and the knowledge which they had acquired, consulting each other in the more important events of their reigns. In all things they communicated with each other as most faithful friends. I have already mentioned in the eleventh chapter that in the same night in which the incarnate word was born, they were informed by his birth by the ministry of the holy angels. It happened in the following manner. One of the guardian angels of our queen, of a higher order than that of the guardian angels of the three kings, was sent from the cave of the nativity. By his superior faculties he enlightened the three guardian angels of the kings, informing them at the same time of the will and command of the Lord, that each of them should manifest to his charge the mystery of the incarnation and of the birth of Christ our Redeemer. Immediately, and in the same hour, each of the three angels spoke in dreams to the wise man under his care. This is the usual course of angelic revelations when the Lord communicates with souls through the angels. This enlightenment of the kings concerning the mysteries of the Incarnation was very copious and clear. They were informed that the King of the Jews was born as true God and man, that he was the Messiah and Savior who was expected, that it was the one who was promised in the scriptures and prophecies, and that they themselves, the three kings, were singled out by the Lord to seek the star which Balaam had foretold. Each one of the three kings was also made aware that the same revelation was being made to the other two in the same way, and that it was not a favor or miracle which should remain unused, but that they were expected to cooperate with the divine light and execute what it pointed out. They were inspired and inflamed with a great love and with a desire to know the God-made man, to adore him as their creator and redeemer, and serve him with most perfect devotion. In all this they were greatly assisted by their distinguished moral virtues which they had acquired. For an account of them they were excellently disposed for the operation of the divine enlightenment. After receiving these heavenly revelations in their sleep, the three kings awoke at the same hour of the night, and prostrating themselves on the ground and humiliating themselves to the dust, they adored in spirit the immutable being of God. 
They exalted his infinite mercy and goodness for having sent the divine word to assume the flesh of a virgin in order to redeem the world and give eternal salvation to men. Then all three of them, governed by an impulse of the same spirit, resolved to depart without delay for Judea in search of the divine child in order to adore him. The three kings prepared gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh in equal quantities, being guided by the same mysterious impulse. And without having conferred with each other concerning their undertaking, the three of them arrived at the same resolve and the same plan of executing it. In order to set out immediately, they procured on the same day the necessary camels and provisions, together with a number of servants for the journey. Without heeding the commotion caused among their people, or considering that they were to travel in foreign regions, or caring for any outward sign of authority, without ascertaining particulars of the place, whither they were to go, or gathering information for identifying the child, they at once resolved with fervent zeal and ardent love to depart in order to seek the newborn king. At the same time, the holy angel, who had brought the news from Bethlehem to the kings, formed of the material air a most resplendent star, although not so large as those of the firmament, for it was not to ascend higher than was necessary for the purpose of his formation. It took its course through the atmospheric regions in order to guide and direct the holy kings to the cave where the child awaited them. Its splendor was of a different kind from that of the sun and the other stars. With its most beautiful light, it illumined the night like a brilliant torch, and it mingled its own most active brilliancy with that of the sun by day. On coming out of their palaces, each one of the kings saw this new star, although each from a different standpoint, because it was only one star and it was placed in such distance and height that it could be seen by each one at the same time. As the three of them followed the guidance of this miraculous star, they soon met. Thereupon it immediately approached them much more closely, descending through many shifts of the aerial space and rejoicing them by shedding its refulgence over them at closer range. They began to confer among themselves about the revelation they had received and about their plans, finding that they were identical. They were more and more inflamed with devotion and with the pious desire of adoring the newborn God and broke out in praise and admiration at the inscrutable works and mysteries of the Almighty. The Magi pursued their journey under the guidance of the star without losing sight of it until they arrived at Jerusalem, as well on this account as also because the city was the capital and metropolis of the Jews. They suspected that this was the birthplace of their legitimate and true king. They entered into the city and openly inquired after him, saying, Where is the king of the Jews who is born? For we have seen his star in the east, announcing to us his birth, and we have come to see him and adore him. Their inquiry came to the ears of Herod, who at that time unjustly reigned in Judea and lived in Jerusalem. The wicked king panic-stricken at the thought that a more legitimate claimant to the throne should have been born, felt much disturbed and outraged by this report. With him the whole city was aroused, some of the people out of flattery to the king, others on account of the fear of disturbance. Immediately, as St. Matthew relates, Herod called together a meeting of the principal priests and scribes 
in order to ask them where the Christ was to be born according to the prophecies and holy scriptures. They answered that according to the words of one of the prophets, Micah, he was to be born in Bethlehem, since it was written by him that from there the ruler of Israel was to arise. Thus informed of the birthplace of the new king of Israel, and insidiously plotting from that very moment to destroy him, Herod dismissed the priests. Then he secretly called the Magi in order to learn of them at what time they had seen the star as harbinger of his birth. They ingeniously informed him, and he sent them away to Bethlehem, saying to them in covert malice, Go and inquire after the infant, and when you have found him, announce it to me, in order that I too may go to recognize and adore him. The Magi departed, leaving the hypocritical king ill at ease and in great consternation at such indisputable signs of the coming of the legitimate king of Israel into the world. Although he could have eased his mind in regard to his sovereignty by the thought that a recently born infant could not be enthroned so very soon, yet human prosperity is so unstable and deceitful that it can be overthrown even by an infant or by the mere threat of far-off danger. Thus can even an imagined uncertainty destroy all the enjoyment and happiness so deceitfully offered to its possessors. On leaving Jerusalem, the Magi again found the star, which at their entrance they had lost from view. By its light they were conducted to Bethlehem and to the cave of the Nativity. Diminishing in size, it hovered over the head of the infant Jesus and bathed him in its light, whereupon the matter of which it had been composed dissolved and disappeared. Our great queen had already been prepared by the Lord for the coming of the kings, and when she understood that they were approaching the cave, she requested St. Joseph not to leave it but to stay at her side. This he did, although the sacred text does not mention it. Like many other things passed over in the Gospels, this is not necessary for establishing the truth of the mystery. Nevertheless, it is certain that St. Joseph was present when the kings adored the infant Jesus. The precaution of sending him away was not necessary, for the Magi had already been instructed that the mother of the newborn was a virgin, and that he was the true God and not a son of St. Joseph. Nor would God have permitted them to be led to the cave ignorant of such an important circumstance as his origin, allowing them to adore the child as the son of Joseph and of a mother not a virgin. They were fully instructed as to all these things, and they were deeply impressed by the sacramental character of all these exalted and complicated mysteries. The Heavenly Mother awaited the child and devout kings, standing with the child in her arms. Amid the humble and poor surroundings of the cave, in incomparable modesty and beauty, she exhibited at the same time a majesty more than human, the light of heaven shining in her countenance. Still more visible was this light in the child, shedding through the cavern a fulgent splendor which made it like a heaven. The three kings of the east entered, and at the first sight of the son and the mother, They were for a considerable space of time overwhelmed with wonder. They prostrated themselves upon the earth, and in this position they worshipped and adored the infant, 
acknowledging him as the true God and man and as the Savior of the human race. By the divine power which the sight of him and his presence exerted in their souls, they were filled with new enlightenment. They perceived the multitude of angelic spirits, who as servants and ministers of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, attended upon him in reverential fear. Arising, they congratulated their and our Queen as Mother of the Son of the Eternal Father, and they approached to reverence her on their knees. They sought her hand in order to kiss it, as they were accustomed to do to their queens in their countries. But the most prudent lady withdrew her hand, and offered instead that of the Redeemer of the world, saying, My spirit rejoices in the Lord, and my soul blesses and extols him, because among all the nations he has called and selected you to look upon and behold that which many kings and prophets have in vain desired to see, namely, him who is the eternal word incarnate. Let us extol and praise his name on account of the sacraments and mysteries wrought among his people. Let us kiss the earth which he sanctifies by his real presence. At these words of the Most Holy Mary, the three kings humiliated themselves anew, adoring the infant Jesus. They acknowledged the great blessings of living in the time when the Son of Justice was arising in order to illumine the darkness. Thereupon they spoke to St. Joseph, congratulated him, and extolling his good fortune in being chosen as the spouse of the Mother of God. And they expressed wonder and compassion at the great poverty beneath which were hidden the greatest mysteries of heaven and earth. In this intercourse they consumed three hours, and then the kings asked permission of the Most Holy Mary to go to the city in order to seek a lodging, as they could find no room for themselves in the cave. Some people had accompanied them, but the Magi alone participated in the light and the grace of this visit. The others took notice merely of what passed exteriorly, and witnessed only the destitute and neglected condition of the mother and her husband. Though wondering at the strange event, they perceived nothing of its mystery. The Magi took leave and departed, while the most holy Mary and Joseph, being again alone with their child, glorified his majesty with new songs of praise, because his name was beginning to be known and adored among the Gentiles. From the grotto of the Nativity, into which the three kings had entered directly on their way to Jerusalem, they betook themselves to a lodging inside of the town of Bethlehem. They retired to a room where, in an abundance of affectionate tears and aspirations, they spent the greater part of the night speaking of what they had seen, of the feelings and affections aroused in each, and of what each had noticed for himself in the divine child and his mother. During the conference they were more and more inflamed with divine love, amazed at the majesty and divine effulgence of the infant Jesus, at the prudence, modesty, and reserve of his mother, at the holiness of her spouse Joseph, and the poverty of all three, at the humbleness of the place where the Lord of heaven and earth had wished to be born. The devout kings felt a divine fire which flamed up in their hearts, and not being able to restrain themselves, they broke out into exclamations of sweet affection and acts of great reverence and love. What is this that we feel, they said? What influence of this great king is it that moves us to such desires and affections? After this, how shall we converse with men? 
What can we do who have been instructed in such new, hidden, and supernatural mysteries? O greatness of his omnipotence unknown to men and concealed beneath such poverty! O humility unimaginable for mortals! Would that all be drawn to it, in order that they may not be deprived of such happiness! During these divine colloquies, the Magi remembered the dire destitution of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in their cave, and they resolved immediately to send them some gifts in order to show their affection and to satisfy their desire of serving them, since they could not do anything else for them. They sent through their servants many of the presents which they had already set aside for them, and others which they could procure. Most holy Mary and Joseph received these gifts with humble acknowledgment, and they made a return not of empty-worded thanks, as other men are apt to make, but many efficacious blessings for the spiritual consolation of the three kings. These gifts enabled our great queen to prepare for her ordinary guests the poor in abundant repast, for the needy ones were accustomed to receive alms from her, and attracted still more by her sweet words were wont to come and visit her. The kings went to rest full of incomparable joy in the Lord, and in their sleep the angels advised them as to their journey homeward. On the following day at dawn they returned to the cave of the Nativity in order to offer to the heavenly king the special gifts which they had provided. Arriving, they prostrated themselves anew in profound humility, and opening their treasures, as scripture relates, they offered him gold, incense, and myrrh. They consulted the Heavenly Mother in regard to many mysteries and practices of faith, and concerning matters pertaining, pertaining to their consciences and to the government of their countries, for they wished to return well instructed and capable of directing themselves to holiness and perfection in their daily life. The Great Lady heard them with exceeding pleasure, and she conferred interiorly with the Divine Infant concerning all that they had asked, in order to answer and properly to instruct these sons of the new law. As a teacher and an instrument of divine wisdom, she answered all their questions, giving them such high precepts of sanctity that they could scarcely part from her, on account of the sweetness and attraction of her words. However, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, reminding them of the necessity and of the will of the Lord that they should return to their country. No wonder that her words should so deeply affect these kings, for all her words were inspired by the Holy Spirit and full of infused science regarding all that they had inquired and many other matters. The Heavenly Mother received the gifts of the kings and in their name offered them to the infant Jesus. His Majesty showed by signs of highest pleasure that he accepted their gifts they themselves became aware of the exalted and heavenly blessings with which he repaid them more than a hundredfold. According to the custom of their country, they also offered to the heavenly princess some gems of great value. But because these gifts had no mysterious signification and referred not to Jesus, she returned them to the kings, reserving only the gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. In order... To send them away more rejoiced, she gave them some of the clothes in which she had wrapped the infant God, for she neither had nor could have had any greater visible pledges of esteem with which to enrich them at their departure. The three kings received these relics with such reverence and esteem that they encased them in gold and precious stones in order to keep them ever after. 
As a proof of their value, these relics spread about such a copious fragrance that they revealed their presence a league in circumference. However, only those who believed in the coming of God into the world were able to perceive it, while the incredulous perceived none of the fragrance emitted by the relics. In their own countries, the Magi performed great miracles with these relics. For the rest of their lives, these most fortunate kings lived up to their divine vocation as true disciples of the Mistress of Holiness, governing both their souls and the people of their states according to her teaching. By the example of their lives and the knowledge of the Messiah which they spread about, they converted a great number of souls to the belief in the true God and to the way of salvation. Finally, full of days and merits, they closed their careers in sanctity and justice, having been favored both in life and in death by the Mother of Mercy. After dismissing the kings, the heavenly Queen and St. Joseph spent their time in new canticles of praise of the wonders of the Most High, conferring them with the sayings of the scriptures and the prophecies of the patriarchs, which they saw fulfilled one after another in the infant Jesus. But the most prudent mother, who profoundly penetrated into the deepest meanings of these high sacraments, remembered them all and treasured them up in her bosom. The holy angels, who were witnesses of these holy mysteries, congratulated their queen that her most holy son had been manifested and that his majesty had been adored by men. And they sang to him new canticles, magnifying his mercies wrought upon mankind. And so ends for today my reading of the account, first of the circumcision of Jesus, and then of the visit of the Magi to the infant Jesus, taken from Mary of Agrita's uh, City of God. And you will have noted, perhaps, that in this combination of readings, we have had the uh, infinite Jewishness of Jesus, so to speak, reflected in the fact of his circumcision, and in what used to be the Feast of the Circumcision on the eighth day after Christmas, and the universality of Jesus, because, of course, he wasn't the Messiah of the Jews for the sake of being the Messiah of the Jews. He was the Messiah of the Jews for the sake of being the Redeemer of all mankind. And so, as he came as a Jewish infant into the cave in Judea, in the land of the Jews, and was circumcised on the eighth day in fulfillment of the Jewish law, uh, almost immediately thereafter, he received the homage and the visit of the three magi, the three kings from the world of the Gentiles, who offered him gifts and worship to show that, in fact, although he had come into the world as a Jew and as the Jewish Messiah, it was to serve not the Jews per se, but to serve the entire world, to be the redeemer of the world. And so the first, the first um, notables of the world who recognized him and adored him and worshipped him and gave him gifts were, in fact, representatives of the outside world, of the Gentile world. So I hope this was an appropriate reading for both this show, Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, and also for this period uh, immediately after Christmas and immediately preceding the former Feast of the Circumcision of Jesus. And I hope that you uh, enjoyed it, and I hope that you join us again next week on Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism. This is Roy Shoman saying goodbye for now. Hear you, see you next week, same time, same place. Bye.